We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you would, turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. It's where we'll be this morning. For those of you who may be visiting with us and you not know exactly who I am, I am Trey Spangler. I'm the Children of Families pastor here. It is a privilege to be with you. Uh, it is an honor to uh, bring God's Word to you this morning. One of the things that I have realized as we were, as I was preparing for this sermon, is that we live in a time that it's not hard to turn the TV on and find someone debating something or discussing uh, who is the greatest, whether that is in a sport, whether that's who's the greatest politician, who's the greatest, whatever. We live in a time where people always have an opinion and are always willing to give it when it comes to who they believe is the greatest. But one of the things that I find interesting about those debates is some of, some of the times they're based on, based on statistics, which are legitimate and can be factored in. But then there are also times when those debates are personal preference. For instance, you take someone who is a baseball catcher, they're likely to say that the greatest athletes ever in baseball were catchers. A pitcher may do the same thing. We have our bias. We have our preference toward what it is we're good at, what it is that we like the most, what we see the most value in, uh, and the value of those skills. So we, we take stats in, but we also look at it and go, you know what, I have a personal preference. And the, those debates are fun sometimes. They're good for a laugh, but if we're honest, at the end of the day, they're meaningless. And they're meaningless for a couple of reasons. First being this, that great athlete that you think you knew, that great politician that you think you knew, guess what? There is a younger one, more athletic, more talented one coming in the pipe that's going to beat the one that's the greatest. Or you're going to have a politician or someone who's more charismatic who's going to come along and people are going to like them more because they're younger, they're more energetic, they're more charismatic than their predecessor. So you have that to factor in. You also have to factor in the fact that when it comes to sports, when it comes to politics, when it comes to anything else that someone may be the greatest at, there comes a time when a new generation comes along and that said athlete that was the greatest is now so old, no one even remembers who he or she was. They move past our realm of knowledge because we don't even know who they are. What's crazy for me is there's going to come a time when people don't even really know who Tiger Woods is. I watched him in his heyday win all the things that he won. And there are probably people in this room right now that don't know who Jack Nicholas is. The greatest player ever to play golf. Some of you may not even know the name. But he's now gotten to the point in his life where he's past your generations. But I'm going to settle the debate this morning. I'm going to settle it fairly easy. The greatest person that has ever walked this planet is Jesus. And it's not because I'm standing here reading the Bible. It's not because I'm preaching this morning. It's a simple fact. The things that Jesus did, no one else could do. For instance, Jesus' significance has withstood the test of time. I know that. I'll use myself as an example. 
I know who Jesus is, but I don't know the names of my great-grandparents. It's not that my great-grandparents weren't great people. I remember my great-grandmother and my great-grandfather, but right off the top of my head, without calling my mother and asking her what their names were, I can't tell you what they are. All I can tell you is they were nanny and nandad. But as far as their real God, their names their parents gave them, I don't know. But I know the name of Jesus. I pick on myself, but probably if I were to debate, if I were to poll the people in this room, I'm probably not the only one that that's the case. And that's just great-grandparent. We forget those things. He has withstood the test of time. He is also the most significant person because of the things that he has done in our life. The things that Jesus did for us that we're going to read through in these verses, no politician, no athlete could ever have done for mankind. They're just not that important. They think they are. We may look at them and think that they are, but the fact is, they're just not that valuable. This morning, we're going to read through Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to verse 23. This is where we're going to be looking at the fact that Jesus is central to our life and to our faith. That's the, the big idea of what we're going to be looking at. So if you would, and you're in Colossians chapter 1, if you would stand as we read God's Word, beginning in chapter, 15, uh, chapter 1, verse 15, through chapter, uh, verse 23. This is what Paul writes about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, firstborn from the dead, so that we might have come first place, so they might have come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith, you are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, the opportunity you've given us to come and to look at your word. I pray that you will Use your word this morning to convict people. Use this word your mo this morning to challenge us to ask this simple question as we leave. If we are a follower of Christ, if we are a follower of yours, are you truly central and most important in our life? I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing we're going to look at and to defend the statement that Jesus is better than any athlete or any politician we've ever seen, because they're not that important, 
is this. Verse 15 to verse 17 talks about how Jesus is the creator of all things. Again, no one else can make that claim. No one else can pretend to make that claim because no one else has created all things. We may look at a, you may look at a painting in your home and say, well, I created that. Well, partly. You use the gifts that God given you to draw that, to paint that, but still you didn't create all of those things that are within that painting. There are parts of it that you didn't. You may say, well, I mixed my paint. Fantastic. You didn't make whatever it is that you made it out of. If it's natural, you didn't make the dirt. You didn't make the mud. Verse 15 says this, that he is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. When it talks about the fact that Jesus is the image, it is referring to the fact that Jesus is the representation, the actual visual representation of who God is. So when Jesus was here on earth, he was the visible representation of God here on this earth. You kind of get this concept when you look at families around you who have children. They're the image of their parents. I told Keisha not too long ago, uh, and someone else, it's interesting now that I've been here long enough, now I'm starting to see kids and know who their parents are because they look like each other. Some of them you can't deny. You may want to deny your children, but you can't. They are the exact image of you. They look like you, and for some of you, unfortunately, they may act like you. But we can't deny our kids because they look like us. Jesus is the image of God. He is the one who was come, and He is the exact representation of God here on earth. Not only was He the image, He was also firstborn. This is not a creation thing. This, this concept of Jesus being referred to as firstborn is not that Jesus was first created, unlike what some doctrines of some religions might try to teach. Jesus was created. He was not created. This concept of firstborn here is a rank. This is where Jesus stands. When you look in the Bible, firstborn in the Old Testament got the lion's share of everything. He was most important within the family. He got the biggest share of all the property, the biggest share of everything. The firstborn was the most important. His rank was higher than everyone else. Second was far second. For today, we kind of understand this concept because it still sort of happens today. In some of our families, the one who is executor of your estate or the one who might deal with all of your affairs when you pass away may not be the oldest child. It may be the youngest, it may be the middle. They're the one that's responsible for handling all of those affairs whenever you pass away. And it may not be the oldest, it may be the youngest. That is the case in our family. And within our family, my uncle, who is the youngest of all the kids, is the one that is the executor of the state of my grandfather. So he's the youngest, but yet he has the responsibility of the firstborn within our family whenever my grandfather goes home to be with the Lord. Lord willing, that's a long time from now. But Jesus' rank is he is the image of God and he is the most important. His rank is greater than anything else. Verse 16 goes on and gives another reason why we look at the importance of who Jesus is creation. He says, For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible, the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. We don't have a hard time with the visible stuff. 
We don't struggle with that. That makes sense. I look out and I see people looking back at me. I look out and I see people. I see seats. I see carpet. We don't have any problem with things that are visible. Where we tend to struggle as a people is the things that are not. Jesus created all things. Everything was created by him and for him. John 1.3 says, All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that had been created. One of the reasons this is in here is because if you flip over, we're not going to go there, but if you go to Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, the church of Colossae was dealing with an issue. That issue that the church was dealing with was the issue, issue of angel worship. And Paul was trying to address the issue, address the problem in the church of Colossae, which is worshiping angels, which we should not be doing. And unfortunately, this is the issue in the church of Colossae, and it's sort of an issue within Christians today too. Because we have this philosophy for some that we all want to have some form of guardian angel. And... Yet, when we look through the Scripture, the things that we have in our mind do not match the things that the Bible talks about of an angel. I read an article by CBS News that said 8 out of 10 people believe angels existed. I can buy that. Then I followed it up with a search. I was just curious what people's opinions, what their view of angels were. So I googled angel art. What's it look like? What are people drawing? What are people showing when it comes to angels? Most of it was babies with wings. The second thing that I saw a lot of were, best description I have, blonde men who don't look very scary. Very inviting, very kind, very compassionate. Come talk to me. That kind of a, a, a person. However, that is not what we see within the Scripture. That is not the description that we have throughout the scripture of what angels are. Angels are very scary in person. They cause people to fall down and prostrate before them. They cause people to be afraid. I'm not going to read these, but these are some places you can go look. Uh, Daniel chapter 10, Genesis chapter 19 and chapter 21, Matthew 28, Luke chapter 2. Acts chapter 27. These are all chapters and places where angels are mentioned interacting with mankind and people being afraid of what they've seen. So here you have a church of Colossae struggling with angel worship and they're at a point where they're afraid of these angels. But if angels are this impressive, imagine how impressive the presence of God would be. Well, we don't have to imagine. We go to Exodus. I will read this. Exodus chapter 33 is where a lot of people go with the interaction of God and Moses. Exodus 33, verse 19 to 23, says this. Moses wants to see God's glory, and he said in verse 19, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will be compassionate on whom I will show compassion. And he said, but he added, you cannot see my face, for humans cannot see me and live. The Lord said, here's the place near me. You stand on this rock. When my glory passes by, I will hide you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I pass by. 
Then I will take my hand away, and you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. So the presence of angels causes fear, but the presence of God's face causes death. But yet the church of Colossae was struggling with worshiping angels. Seems to be kind of backwards. Because even seeing the back of God in Exodus chapter 34, Moses comes down off the mountain and his face was glowing and the people were afraid of what they had seen in Moses because it changed his actual look. In fact, from then he had to wear a veil because he scared the people. When he was in the presence of the Lord, his face would start to glow. So let me ask you this question. It's a question that Paul was struggling with with the church of Colossae and it's a question that I have to ask us today why in the world would we worship angels when we could worship a God like that why the angels didn't do anything for you they didn't create you they don't sustain you they didn't bring you out of into existence out of nothing they were created too church Colossae was worshiping angels and Paul saying stop it they didn't do anything for you God said, Paul writes here that Jesus created all of these things. Rulers and authorities, thrones and dominions, things you can see and the things you can't see. All visible and invisible. Verse 17 says, He is before all things, and by Him all things hold together. You know, it's a great thing to know that when we look at the Scripture, I don't have to ask a question. I know who holds everything together because the Bible tells me who holds it together. My government doesn't hold it together. Some political power in another country doesn't hold everything together. It is not held together by random chance. The world that we live in was put where it was supposed to be put because if it was too far from the sun, it would be too cold and not hold life. If it was too close to the earth, it would be too hot and we could not survive here either. It is put where it's supposed to be. It spins at the rate that it's supposed to spin. Your body was created the way that it was supposed to be created. For it to all work and to all have everything that you needed for all the parts to work and everything for you to live your life and sustain your life was created with a purpose by Jesus. All things were created by Him. He holds them all together. We look at our family sometimes and we say, well, this person holds this family together and that person holds that family together. Well, what happens when that person's out? You may say, well, somebody else steps in. Well, no, that family is still held together by the Lord. Because we worship a God who Jesus has created all things. Not only has He created all things, the second thing that we see is this in verse 18 to 20, that Jesus is the head of all the body. He's the head of the church. Verse 18, He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning Firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. So Jesus, firstborn over all creation, he is head of the church. I'm going to say this, and I know he's going to listen to it, but he's going to agree. Larry LeBlanc is not the head of this church. No pastor that you have on this staff is head of the church. Pastors not, are not end-all, be-all for the church. We're under-shepherds. Jesus is the shepherd of the church. We work for Him. No different than you do. We just have a different calling on our life than you do. 
We serve the church. The Lord leads the church. We follow his direction. Brother Larry follows his direction. He, lead, he listens to what the Lord tells him to do, just like every other pastor on your staff at this church. We all follow the direction of the Lord. Jesus is center for what we do. It's not our opinions. Unfortunately, I, was, I don't remember where I was. I was at a church not too long ago or heard someone preaching a sermon. And, and he may have said it in error, but he made mention to the fact that pastors were shepherds of the church. And I thought to myself, I really hope that brother does not believe that because we're not. I kind of, as I was thinking about it, I thought, you know, at best, we're interns. At best. We like to call ourselves under shepherds, but at best, we're interns. We're doing our best to serve the way we're supposed to, to serve the head of the church, who is Jesus. Jesus is the head of the church. He is also firstborn from the dead. This is not, this is a reference to his resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, As it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus is the head of the church. He is first fruits of the dead. He is the one that was resurrected so that we could have salvation. He is extremely significant. And he is to have first place in everything. Here's where we tend to struggle. When we're looking at the centrality of who Jesus is, if He's central, He's the middle. Everything else revolves around who Jesus is. It doesn't work. To, we don't put something else in the middle of our life and have Jesus revolving around it. He's in the wrong spot. If Jesus is central in our life where He is supposed to be, if He is doing the things that He is supposed to do in our life, He is first place in everything. That is your family. That is your life. That's your business. It's your friendships. All things means all things. You don't get to say Jesus is central and means everything in church, but not here. This is business. Business is business. No, business is where Jesus is supposed to be, the center of all things there too. You may say, well, in my friendships, he's partly center in some and some he's not. No, he is supposed to be central and in control of all of those things. And believe me, you don't have to tell your children, you don't have to tell your grandchildren what is most important in your life. You don't have to use the words because they see it. The way you live your life, the way place you put your time and you put your effort, they know what is most important in your life. Just like my children know what is most important in mine without me saying it. They watch and they see what is most important. As he says here, which thing is taking first place in my life? Verse 19 goes on. He says, For God was pleased to have His fullness dwell in Him. Sometimes we see words like this, the word fullness, and we're like, what does that even mean? How do we deal with this? It's basically totality. So the basic understanding of this is God was pleased to have His total, who He is, everything that can be said and must be said about God the Father can be said and must be said about who Jesus is. If these other things didn't matter, and you look at these things and say, well, I don't believe any of that. If this verse comes up and it says that the fullness of God dwelt on Jesus, that right there should be enough for you to go, okay, Jesus is, in fact, the most important person who has ever walked on this planet. 
Because the things that can be said about God the Father are the things that can be said and must be said about who Jesus is as the Son. They're no different. You don't separate them and say, well, this is who the Father is and this is who the Son is. They're different. They're not. They are the same. Follow that up with verse 20. It's through Him that we are reconciled. Everything to Himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Jesus is the one that has reconciled us to himself. Jesus is the one who has saved us. This idea of reconciliation is bringing together two parties that were estranged. Jesus Christ is the one who brings together God and man through salvation. Through his blood that was shed on the cross for me and for you. As the head of the body, he is the one that has paid your debt. No pastor ever alive has paid the debt of their church. It doesn't matter how good they are or how good the church thinks they are or how compassionate they are or how much grace and mercy they show or how much of a good expositor of the word that they are. Those things don't matter. They didn't pay for the church. Jesus did. Jesus is not only the head of the church, he's also Savior of humanity, verse 21 to verse 23. Verse 21 says, once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions. We were at one time hostile toward the things of God. It doesn't matter how good you think you are. You may be in here thinking that has nothing to do with me because I'm a good person. I do this, this, and this. Those things don't matter because if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you're hostile to the gospel. You're separated. You're alienated. You're expressing evil actions. Even in your good things that you do, you are not good enough to pay for your sin. You hate the things of God because we are separated. Romans 8, 7 says, The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to to do so. If you're separated from the Lord and you're not a follower of Christ, you are unable to submit to God's law because you're separated. Jesus has not paid for your sin. He's not paid your debt. You're unable to do those things. This is why we repent. This is why we believe because repentance is the changing of mind and the changing of actions. We turn from our sin to the things of the Lord. Whereas if we don't repent and follow, we stay in our hostility. We stay in our alienation. We stay in the place where we hate the things of God and we remain in our sinfulness and we remain headed for destruction. Verse 21, or excuse me, verse 22 and 23 says, But he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you as holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded in the steadfast in the faith, and you're not shifted away from the hope in the gospel that you have heard, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Jesus reconciles us to himself. He brings us to himself, sets us apart, so that we can be presented before the Lord as holy, faultless, and blameless. 
we're presented as a part of the family. This goes back to some of the issues that you see in verse 16. Verse 16, again, talking about the, the worship of angels. I hear this sometimes, and it kind of bothers me because I know this is not the way God intends us for us. We'll see people who lose their loved ones, and the first response is, so-and-so has got their angel wings today. That is not how you are going to enter into heaven. Nowhere in the Bible does it talk about the fact that God has presents the angels as holy, faultless, and blameless. But he says that about us. So we have to be careful in where we put our hope and where we put our trust because it is not to be in angels. When you pass away, if you are in a relationship with the Lord, you are in Christ's hands. You are not in the hands of an angel. You're in the hands of Jesus. And if he's paid for your sin, you will stand before the Lord and he will present you because of the shed blood before the Father as holy, faultless, and blameless. Think about that. As bad as you were, before you came to Christ, there will be a day when Jesus will show the Father and say, this one's mine. I paid for him. Doesn't matter how terrible you were, Jesus will present you as holy and faultless and blameless because of what he did. But if you are not a child of Christ, you are separated you will not be presented as holy, faultless, and blameless. You will be condemned because you will stand before the Lord and Jesus will say, they're not mine. And you have to pay your own debt and you're condemned to hell because that is where your sin sends you. Your hostility, your, host your alienation from the Lord has you cast out from the Father. If indeed, verse 23 goes on and says, if you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith. We have to be a Christian, a people who we live in a time when everything is trying to attack Christianity. Everything is trying to attack the things that we believe and the things that we have hope in and the things that we have faith in. Everything is trying to attack it. But we have to remain constant in the one thing that we know has truth. That's the Bible. We have to remain steadfast on the foundation that you've been built on if you're a follower of Christ which is Jesus. That foundation is strong. There is no other foundation that is stronger than the foundation of Christ. The question is, if you're a follower of Christ, you will remain there. Life's not going to be easy. Life's going to be a struggle. No one in this room will tell you once you become a Christian, life is easy, because it's not. But a Christian will remain grounded, steadfast in the hope of the gospel that we've heard. George Swinnick was a man who was a Puritan preacher. Apparently, when I read this, apparently he was a fiery Puritan preacher. This is what he said. He says, The upright soul is constant in his profession. It does not change his behavior. Get this. Does not change his behavior according to his companions. Oh, that I might never, through shame or fear, disown him who has already acknowledged me. We have to be careful to make sure 
that no matter who our companions are, as George Swinnick says, we are not living in a way that we are afraid or that we have shame of what Jesus has taught us, that we are not living in a way and disown him, as he says, who has already acknowledged us. If you're a child of God and you're a follower of Jesus, don't disown the one who saved you from your sins. You have a, every one of us in this room, we've got to do something with Jesus. He is either Lord of your life, creator of the universe, head of the church, savior of humanity, or he's none of those things. He has, as many other religions would say, Jesus is a good man. You've got to do something with him. And what you do with Jesus will determine your relationship with Jesus. Because if Jesus is the things that he is written about here by Paul, if he is all of these things, if he is supposed to be the one who is central to our life and to our faith, then he truly is central in our life and he is central in our faith. You can't have Jesus central in your faith and not in your life and vice versa. Jesus has to have the most important position in your life in every part of your life, not just parts of it. You don't have a right to pick and choose. If he's central, he's central. But if you leave today, you have to do something with Jesus. You either acknowledge who he really is or you deny him. And I pray that however the Holy Spirit is working in your life, you will listen and you'll be obedient to what God's called you to do. You'll have a chance here in just a minute to do something with Jesus. You'll either respond to the gospel and see that this is the church family you want to be a part of, a church that puts Jesus at its center, Jesus at the core of everything that we do. The Word is our guiding principle. Our direction is this. If that's the church you want, this is your church for you. You may need to come this morning and repent of some sin. Or this morning you may need to come and accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You may need to make him Lord of your life, center of your life, the ruler of your life. However the Lord is working, my prayer is that you listen. Don't leave here today saying, I'll deal with it later. You may not have it later. Jesus wants us to be faithful and obedient today. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to FBC Summit. We are leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. For more information, visit our website, fbcsummit.org.